Amen. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this evening. Um, teenagers will be in here for now, and then after the message is done, we'll, we'll go back to the youth room, and we'll have some time of prayer and some uh, other things planned as well. But um, Pastor asked if I would continue the Revelation series, and that's what we're going to do. So Revelations chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3 is we, where we are at this evening. Revelation chapter 3, and last few weeks, uh, the adults, we've been going through the, when I say we, I'll just mean you guys, (laughs) but we've been going through the churches in Asia Minor, seven churches in total, and I think we have a little bit of PowerPoint here. Does it work? All right, this is my favorite part. I love the intro. Wait for it. Yes. Revelation tonight. All right, um, so we've been going through the churches in Asia Minor, and we have uh, seven up here. We're on the sixth one now, and this is just this is an example of um, through the timeline of of history from the apostolic age all the way up to the last days. And uh, one one theory behind the these churches in in Revelation is that. Each church represents a time frame in history, and whether that's completely accurate or not, uh, not too sure, but it's uh, some pretty interesting things to look up here, and we are on the sixth church right here. Uh, can you see this thing? It's very small. I'm just going to put this back down, pretend it was never used. But we have uh, the church in Ephesus was the first church that we looked at. Seems to cover about 80-30 to about uh, 80-100, the apostolic age. Uh, historically speaking, um, we have the church in Smyrna. And what was significant about the church in Smyrna? Anybody remember? What's that? I heard it. I heard whispers. It's got a cool name, Smyrna. Not very, it's only really one vowel in the whole word, which is kind of neat. I guess Y counts as a vowel. But Smyrna, the suffering church, there's a church in Pergamos. Um, the beginning of the mixtures, we have the Dark Ages in the Church of Thyatira, um, which is where the Church of Rome really took its toll there. Uh, last, last time we, we were together, we looked at the church in Sardis, and today we are in the Church of Philadelphia. We're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. I'll just read it for you here today. Bible says... And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, and no man... Take thy, that no man take thy crown. 
Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's go ahead and just open our, our, our message time now in a word of prayer, if we could. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that we can come to your throne constantly, all throughout the day, multiple times, and you hear us. Lord, just bless our, our message time. I pray that you would just fill me with your spirit as I preach. Help me to say what only you would have me to say. Bless us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Now, the city of Philadelphia was formed from two Greek words, phileo, which, what does that word mean? Love. And uh, Adelphos, which means brother. So you put the two together and you have love brother. <laughs> love and brother. But yes, the brotherly love is, is the uh, term that's used for Philadelphia. And uh, Philadelphia was located about 80 miles south of Sardis. And it's a good one there. Here we go. It's about uh, 80... Uh, 28 miles south of Sardis, southeast. It was a new city, having been founded in about 140 BC. Now, all the cities that we've talked about in Revelation, these seven cities, this one right here is the youngest of them all, historically. And something interesting about Philadelphia is a lot of these cities in, in this area had these problems, but it struggled a lot with earthquakes. There is a volcanoes not too far away from it, and the emperor uh, Caesars often found themselves needing to uh, rebuild some of these cities because it would uh, happen so often. Uh, but involving in some of these earthquakes and things that would take place, it was uh, built in an area where volcanoes would... I don't know that I would feel comfortable living you know, next to uh, volcanoes and, and whatnot. I guess... You grew up where you at, where you are, and it's hard to move sometimes. But I think I'd just find a way to move if volcanoes was a common thing uh, where I was. However, this was a, a booming city. It was doing quite well. It was rich in agriculture and grapes. Um, it was rich in, and you can go look at it today. It's still a very pretty, very beautiful place to go and see. I'd love to go there someday myself. The land was rich in agriculture, grapes, crops. And, of course, there has to be a Greek god, right? That's just, this is how they go back then. And the, the big god, lowercase g god, around this time was Dionysius. Dionysius. Yeah, Dionysius. I like that sounding better. Is that what you said, Dionysius? Dionysius. Anybody else agree with his pronunciation better? All right. We're just going to stick with him. All right, next time I have a word, I'm just going to point at you, Passover, and just know what I'm thinking, okay, and say it. Um, so that guy, he's also called the god of wine because lots of grapes and stuff in the, uh, around that area. Now, the church at Philadelphia, above all of the churches, is the only church of the seven where the Lord had nothing negative to say about this church. They were known as the faithful and true missionary church. They were followers of Jesus. The entire letter is, is positive in, in what it had to say to this church. 
And I believe this church stands for churches today who are faithful to God, who are following God, who are doing their best to be like God. And there's a lot that we can learn from this church today, some things I'd like us to look at now. And there's another nice picture of sheep. All right. Now, Revelation chapter 3, look in verse 7. The Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These things saith he that is holy. It starts out by Christ describing himself. And he describes himself, first of all, as holy. And I believe this is a parallel of the church we find in Philadelphia. This church was a holy church. Wouldn't it be great if the city knew Great Baptist Church as a holy church? In order for that to take place, each member would have to be holy. So I wonder if everybody in the church was just like you. Would the church be holy? What kind of works would we be known for if everybody in the church was just like you were? What else does it say in verse 7? It says, I am holy, and he that is true. Of course, we know God is a God of truth. And I believe this church in Philadelphia had the same. They were known as a truthful church. I believe they even preached the truth. But look at the third thing here in verse number 7. He that is true, he that hath the key of David... Having the key of David, what does that mean? We're going to look at this a little bit more later on. But Jesus was going to open a door for this church. Now, something interesting about this concept of this key of David. Uh, if you could keep your, your place here in Revelation 3, but look with me in Isaiah chapter 22, if you will. Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22 and verse 22. This is Eliakim, who is the son of the high priest, Hilkiah. Hilkiah, high priest having a son. This record of Isaiah is being spoken to Eliakim, the son of the high priest, or who is the high priest at this time. And Isaiah 22 and verse 22, so this is talking to Eliakim. It says, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And there's more to be said here, but we understand that Eliakim was given the key to the treasures of the king of Hezekiah. So he being the treasurer, the king's treasurer, he was the only one who could open and close the, the treasury door. That's a pretty big responsibility. Nobody can get into the king's secret vault, so to speak, without the key. And as Eliakim had the key to unlock the treasures of the earthly kingdom, so Jesus Christ also has the keys to unlock the riches, the riches and treasures up in heaven. Now go back to Revelation, to where we were. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 says, he hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. We see here that Christ has the key. When he opens a door, nobody can shut it. When he shuts the door, no one can open it. Reminds me of the ark. Remember with Noah and the ark? When all the animals came in, who shut the door of the ark? It was God. 
Now, if you watch Hollywood, Hollywood renditions of Noah, Noah's always the one that closes the door, but that's incorrect. God shut the door. When God shuts something, it can't be open unless he gives you permission. And we'll come back to this idea here. But now look in verse number 8. This is always a little scary. Jesus starts out by saying, I know thy works. I know what you've been doing. Now, if nothing's done wrong, then this is a fantastic thing. I know what you've been doing. I've noticed the good things you're doing. It's funny how when you're driving down the road sometimes and you see a police car, even if you're driving the speed limit, sometimes the first thing you think of doing is letting off the gas, right? Letting off, even if you're driving the speed limit, just, just in case, because you know it happens. Maybe you're going downhill or something. You let off the gas or you put your foot on the brake just in case, and then you look down and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Sometimes you're grateful you did let off the gas and um, get slowed down a few miles there. But we, we know... Sometimes when we know we're doing something wrong, we don't want people, we don't want the Lord to know. But God says this to all the churches here. I know thy works. Behold, verse 8, I have set a door before thee. Interesting, the church, God says, I know thy works. A church should be doing good works. We should be known as a church that's doing something, that's accomplishing something. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We should be doing good works for God. That's what a church is, should be doing. We should be soul winning. We should be worshiping. We should be counseling one another, discipling people towards Christ. We should be trying to help one another. We should be praying for one another. And I believe, actually, this Friday night is our, our church's prayer meeting. And I challenge you to come out at 8 o'clock. I think, am I right on that, Mrs. White? Yes, this, this, uh, this Friday. This is things that churches should be doing, doing good works. We should be challenging each other. We should be serving God every day. What good works are you doing? What, did, what good works did you do for God today? Did you say his name at all in a positive way? Did you try to... Be an example to somebody? Did you get on your knees this morning and ask God to help you be a witness? What kind of works are we doing for God throughout the week, throughout the month? This is December. This is Christmas time. What greater time to serve God than now? So we look at and we see here in verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee, verse 8, an open door, and no man can shut it. To the church at Philadelphia, and to any church, Christ assures that only he opens and closes these doors of opportunity. I've been in, uh, in college, in our PWBC class, I've been teaching a class called History of Revivals, and it's fascinating to go back in time and see God just moving amongst his people. Where a pastor will preach and the whole church will just come forward. And dozens and dozens will get saved and young people will surrender their life. And it's just like sometimes God, when it comes to revival, just opens a door. 
and just lets the Spirit flow and lets things happen. Sometimes God opens doors of opportunity for us as a church. I think this is where that, this terminology comes in, where we're saying, Lord, open a door for us. It's kind of a metaphorical term. But when we're praying for a new building, we can't, we can't afford a new building. God has to open that door for us. We can't afford it. Some of us are praying for our future. Lord, what do I do with my future? Uh, Lord, if this is your will, open the door. You know, let, it, let me be able to walk through it. Missionaries are praying, Lord, I, I want to get into this country, but it's blocked right now. Can you open the door? Open the opportunity for me to go in. There are many countries whose doors are being opened, and I believe God is the one that's opening those doors. It also mentions here in verse 8, it says, uh, it mentions this, uh, I think it's actually in verse uh, 7, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. This key is the symbol of the, the power of God, the key. When you have the key, you can unlock. Uh, anybody ever locked the, their car or locked the keys in their car? And you have no power. You can't open your door now. I mean, you could, you could punch the window if you want. It hurts. You can, you can try to, you know, get a uh, shut a Jimmy the thing open. Chances are you have to call somebody and they have to do it for you. When you have the keys, there's power, so to speak. You can, you can open things. And I was in, uh, when I was still in Bible, Bible college, I got a job as a supervisor working as a janitor. And it's a very high up position, you know. I get to, get to clean Pastor Chapel's toilets, you know. So we had, but one of the things they give you is, because uh, there's so many different janitorial closets all over the campus, they have keys. And I don't know why every door has to have a different key. I guess it just makes you feel special. But when you become a supervisor, they give you the key sets. And it's just utterly ginormous set of keys. And we're required to wear them all the time. So even when we're not working, we need to be on duty, on call, everywhere we go. So I'm going to church, and I've got this wad of keys just bulging out of my pocket, just so annoying, trying to go around, trying to sneak in. You know, you're late for class, trying to sneak in. Everybody knows, oh, Tim's late again. I could hear the key set. But, you know, every once in a while, a visitor comes in, and you're trying to show them around, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I have the key for this door. One second, please. 30 minutes later, you find the key, and you open it up. Something about keys. Sometimes it makes you feel powerful. Well, God has the key. He has the authority. There is no higher power than God. And we serve God. We can talk to God, the God who has the key. Lord, would you just put that key in that door and just turn it for me, if it be your will? Every opportunity, every missionary effort, every salvation door for the gospel, it, all, all of it is made possible by Jesus Christ. When a church is faithful, when it's true, when it's holy, like we just read, God opens doors. He doesn't often open doors for those who aren't holy, who aren't serving God. Sometimes we haven't talked to God in weeks and months, and we all of a sudden come to him and say, hey, Lord, it's me again. It's been a while. Hey, listen, could you open a door for me? God's like, I'm sorry. It doesn't work like that. God 
what he wants. He, he wants that fellowship. He wants that faithfulness to him. The more we remain beside Jesus Christ and the more faithful we are to following his truth, the more doors we can see open for him. Here's a church that's faithful to God. And God is saying, look, I have the key. I will open doors for you. The Apostle Paul understood this concept. If you could turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll come back to Revelations, but 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The Apostle Paul understood this idea as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. Now let's start in verse 7. It's so hard. The more I read, I just want to start in verse 1. We'll start in verse 7. This is Paul. He says, For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. So he's saying, I'm going to Ephesus because there's a door open. God is making a way for me. I don't know how clear that was made to him. Now look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just maybe a page over for you or two. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look in verse 12. 2 Corinthians 2, 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. And then he talks about... Uh, going into uh, Macedonia. So we see here that the Apostle Paul also understood this concept. And he also mentioned, I'll just read this one for you, in Colossians chapter 4, in verse 2, he says, Pray that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. God, open the door. Allow me to be able to speak and proclaim the mystery of the truths of the gospel. Christ has opened many doors throughout history. But what's sad is God has gone out of his way to open up a door only to have nobody go through it. wonder how many mission fields, how many opportunities that God has given us to serve him, and we never walk through that door. I wonder how many young people today have not walked through the door of God's will and will one day have to look back with regret and say, man, I had just walked through that door when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, where I would be today. If I had just listened at that time, if I had just listened to what people were telling me, if I had just opened my heart to God, if I just only wasn't afraid, I wonder how many opportunities have been given to us that we have missed. Christians have been sitting around for a long time, indifferent, blinded oftentimes by love, Pleasure, money, satisfaction. Oftentimes, we don't even realize a door is open right in front of us. But doors don't always stay open. They close. Sometimes there's just a window of opportunity that God will open a door. And we look at it, we go, oh, maybe tomorrow. And we come back tomorrow and the door is already closed. Don't miss out on these God is calling you, if you see an opportunity, especially if it's to serve God, to be holy or righteous in any way, do so. Verse 8 continues on. No man can shut it, says, for thou hast a little strength. 
Now, normally this would sound negative. If I were to say, Ivan, <laughs> you got little strength, man. Little arms, little guy. If I were to say that, that would sound, it would be kind of negative to be, to be called uh, little of strength, per se. But in the mind of the Lord, things are oftentimes the opposite of how we perceive them as humans. What does God say in his word all the time? My strength, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God can't use somebody who thinks they're strong. God can only use those who know they're weak, who know they need God. And this is actually a compliment to this church, for thou hast little strength. Because look at the very next phrase, and hast kept my word. These, these two go hand in hand. He's complimenting them. He's like, I, I realize that you, you, you don't have that much strength. I realize that you're, you're small and you're in need of help. And that's exactly where you need to be. We need to be in a place where we say, God, I need you. I'm nothing without you. Because if once we have pride, once we, once we think we're doing okay, we stop relying on God. This is one reason why it's dangerous to have a lot of money. Because we start feeling comfortable with ourselves and we stop relying on God. It's okay to, to not have all the money you want. And it's not healthy to go work sometimes two, three, four jobs unnecessarily because you feel like you need more to be happy when God's saying, no, stay in a position where you need me. I'll always provide for you. I'll always take care of you. Thou hast little strength. Sounds like a, like a negative con, com, comments, but in reality, it's just showing their faithfulness, their honesty, their holy. They're true-born Christianities. This is the minority right here of people who realize they're small, they're tiny, and they need God. And they need God. It says here in verse eight, "For thou hast kept my word." This is it. This is this is the reason the church was the church in Philadelphia, because they kept the word of God. And it continues, they did not deny my name. Thou hast, did not, thou hast not denied my name. Churches today are going away from God's word and moving towards methods. You know, well, you know, preaching God's word is great and all, but what we really need to do is create, we need to add these methods in our church so that people will come and receive the Lord. So let's, let's change our music, you know, let, let's, let's go, let's, Let's change our, our standards here and even uh, not teach on those doctrines quite as much. Let's just kind of level the playing field here, field here and let's just make it feel welcome for everybody. And many churches are getting away from preaching the truth, preaching God's word. And once that happens, you're no longer a church in Philadelphia. That brotherly love, that, that communion with God starts to diminish. But may we stay a church, may we stay individuals that stay in the word that keep my word. One day you stand before God and God will say, ah, I know you. <laughs> you kept my word. You did not deny my name. Matthew 20, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. For my name's sake, you'll be hated of men. You know, if the world likes you, you're probably doing something wrong. 
See, so many Christians, we spend our life trying to, you know, trying to be okay with the world. We don't really want that criticism. We don't want to, we, we don't want people to speak negatively about us. We kind of want to just blend in, so to speak. But we never see the, the disciples blending in with the world. They always stood out. They were always getting kicked out of church, kicked out of uh, cities. And I'm not saying you need to get yourself kicked out of every city you go into. That's that's the, a different kind of name. We don't need for ourselves. But they weren't afraid of Jesus Christ. Look in verse nine. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Wow, the synagogue of Satan. There were certain Jews who gave uh, trouble to the church. They were on the outside, they looked good, but on the inside, on the, on the outside, they were participating in the synagogue. They were worshiping the Lord, but on the inside, they were part of a different synagogue. As mentioned here, the synagogue of Satan. If you look back in the previous chapter, look in chapter 2 and verse 9. This is back in the church of Smyrna. We have the same problem. In Revelation 2, 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So same thing was happening in this church here. These people who appeared on the outside like they knew what they were doing, but on the inside they were nothing anywhere near the Lord. Uh, Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. He says, uh, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. So he saw the difference here of what we can perceive to people on the outside as opposed to what's actually going on on the inside. You see, you can fool everyone else around you, but you can never fool God. You may even get to a point where you fool yourself. You start believing your own lie. If you live in your lie long enough, then eventually you'll start believing it. You'll forget the truth, but God will never believe your lie. He will always know the truth. And you can pretend this and pretend that, but one day the truth will come out. Look in verse 9 again. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. No, he's not saying I'm going to make them come and worship you, but I will make them come before thy feet so that they can be seen worshiping. They can see the true worshipers of Christ. I will make them come before your feet. And at that moment, they'll realize that it is you that I uplift. That it is you that I, have, that I, that I see as holy. It is not them. I will let them come and stand before your feet for them to realize that I saw through their works. I saw who they really were. And I recognize who my true believers are. Because, he ends in verse 9 by saying, because I, I know to know that I have loved thee. Interesting, no matter who we are, God loves us. He cares for us. And in this context, the love is being pointed specifically towards the church in Philadelphia. But we know that his love extends to all. 
But God sees through hypocrisy. He sees through lies. He sees through deceits. And he won't be deceived or fooled by any. Verse 10, the Bible says, Because thou hast kept my word, the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Because thou hast kept my word of patience. Patience. That's a, that's a tough word. Uh, for a parent, that sometimes is a tough word. And even as a youth pastor, that's a tough word, you know, patience. It's, uh, but patience is, is it's hard for anything. The, the wanting things now mentality. And, you know, they say we live in the, the microwave society. We can just press a button and things are done. And it's, patience is, is a difficult, difficult thing to, to learn. Paul said, run, you know, run the race with, with patience. And it's, a, it's, a, it's that lack of patience oftentimes that causes us to do things we wouldn't normally do. We're impatient. Ah, I just, I want to go. You're driving. You get impatient. You wouldn't normally risk, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, I'm going to see if I can make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to swing a left. Let me see if I can make it. All the time, the lack of patience causes accidents. It causes things to take place. Sometimes pastors lack patience. They think their church should be at a certain place in life. I should have more people saved. Uh, church should be bigger. We should have our own building by now. Maybe there's something wrong and we're, we're not patient enough. So now we start changing things that we wouldn't normally change because we feel like we should be somewhere else and we're not patient. But this church was known for its patience. It was patient. Are you patient? Yeah, yeah you know, my kids are excited. I, I, could, I can keep my cool. Are you patient with God? Do you wish you were somewhere else all the time? Do you wish you always were higher up status? Do you wish you had more, more and more? Are you, are you patient with what you have, with where you're at? Because of their patience, God says he will keep them from the hour of temptation. Now, many people will argue what this means, but I think with the rest of the verses and in context, I think one simple answer is the hour of temptation is in reference to the tribulation. I will remove thee. The, the church is not going to go through the tribulation period, and we're not going to get into that. But understand this in verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And in reference to the tribulation time, that chart we showed at the beginning, you know, I mean, we believe, we're reading God's word, that we're, we're in the last times. That God could come back at any time. Of course, Peter was hoping for this to happen 2,000 years ago. The disciples were wanting, were, hope, were looking forward to God coming back then. We're 2,000 years later now. We're even that much closer. More of the Bible has been completed and, and by that I mean prophecies and things uh, foretold have happened now. And really, we're just waiting for the trumpet to sound and God can come back at any time. Because in verse 11, it says, Behold, I come quickly. We know he's going to come quick. And when the rapture happens, the Bible says it's in the twinkling of an eye. We're not even going to see it coming. It's going to be fast. It's going to come quickly. It's going to come 
suddenly. And this word quickly doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean soon, like it would perceive. But if you look in the origin of the word, it's the references implication to the word suddenly. Another reason it would tie into this idea of it being the tribulation time, that this church in Smyrna, excuse me, this church in Philadelphia, it's, it's an example for all of us churches today that, man, when, when the rapture is about to take place, the trumpet sounds, uh, when the tribulation is about to take place, the, the trumpet sounds, the rapture happens, and we can just kind of fly right over the tribulation. It's not for us. Look at verse 11. I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, and no man may take thy crown. God is saying, hold fast that which you have so that you don't lose your crowns. What, what is he talking about here? We know that in, if you read the New Testament, there are five different crowns that a Christian can receive. And we're not going to go into what those crowns are and, uh, and how you get them. But someday we stand before God, we're going to have crowns that we can cast back at his feet, and there are crowns that we can receive. But in, according to this verse, it looks like we could actually lose these, these crowns. You say, well, how? how? What, what do you mean? How can we lose our crowns? Well, I can tell you this, that the sin of this world can rob us of our crowns. For example, in, in, in 2 John chapter 8, or in 2 John 8, it says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Here's an example of something. We can lose those things which we have received. There are things that we can receive that we can't actually lose. We can lose sight of. John is not talking about losing your salvation. Paul in other verses, talks about all of our works. If we were to put all of our works and add them up to wood, hay, and stubble and, and lose them all, we would still have our salvation. We can't lose our salvation. We know that. But let no man beguile you of your reward. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. The world, the flesh, the devil would like to rob you of your rewards. And we can serve Christ to win rewards. But if we go back into sin, you can lose those rewards. It would be to stand before God someday to have nothing to give him because we did nothing for him. Or that which we did was taken away because of our time in the world. Church in Philadelphia, they got their reward. And Jesus says, hang on to it. Don't lose it. Don't lose sight of it. Hold on. Hold fast. Keep it going. Keep on being faithful. There is a story of a homeless man who was searching through his garbage bin several years ago. And inside a garbage bin, he, uh, he found a wallet. Hey, not bad. Opened the wallet up, $900 in cash in this wallet. Now, normally, that would be just a good day of shopping for a homeless guy, right? Credit cards were inside and everything. Well, on the other side of town, there was, or I should say on the other side of, uh, yes, other side of town, a lady named Kim was praying that she would find her wallet that she lost. 
Well, uh, make a long story short, the, ho the homeless man found this wallet in a trash can across the street. So he went into the near nearest building, and there was ID in the wallet and everything. And with everything intact, the man brought it back and said, I think this belongs to somebody here in your building. And of course, eventually, Kim found uh, her wallet. It was given to her. Everything was intact. Everything was the way it was. And she tried to find this man, but this man wanted to remain nameless. He didn't want to be recognized for his good deed. But the lady who received it said that he definitely smelled like he didn't really have a place to live. He definitely seemed homeless. But yet, out of the goodness of his heart, he still found it right to bring this money back. You may say, well, that's just a fluke. That, that kind of stuff doesn't really happen. You know, that was just a, a random act of kindness, uh, perhaps. But we could see examples of this actually taking place. Uh, several years ago in San Francisco, there was a, um, a, I think it's pronounced Louis Vuitton. Does that sound right? A bag? Is anybody? Yeah, OK. Obviously, I, I don't go shopping very often. But there is this real expensive bag. Um, and inside, it was sitting on a park bench, and some guy named John, I uh, can't pronounce his last name, Sirhoff, we'll say that. He came by, he found this bag. Inside this bag, according to the police, there was a 12-carat diamond ring. There was pearls, emerald jewelry, a uh, Rolex watch, and roughly $500 in cash. The contents of the bag and the bag itself were in upwards near to a million dollars worth, <laughs> sitting on, in a bag, sitting on a park bench in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a park. Uh, the man found the bag, looked through it, found an ID, returned it to the police station, and the bag is now back home to a family in Toronto who was visiting California, left their bag, didn't realize till later that night that it was missing, told the police about it, and the police said, yeah, <laughs> with that content in that bag, you're never going to see that bag again. I'm sorry. So, but later the next day, the bag was returned with nothing stolen. They found the man who gave them the bag, and they, of course, thanked him and offered to give him something in return. And he says, why? He says, everybody I know, all the friends I hang out with, would have done the same thing. He said, so... There's no need to give me anything for doing what I know you would have done for me, right? <laughs> and there's many more examples of this we can see. But you understand, when you are living for God, doing right is just second nature. When you're faithful in the little things, uh, rewards come. And that man was given a reward. He didn't accept it. He was trying not to accept it, but it was given to him. A very, a very uh, considerable amount. Faithful Christians, if we can be rewarded here on earth doing good, how much more will we be rewarded in heaven someday when we stand before God? Now, to end things off here in verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write it upon the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. There will come a time where God will place on us his name. 
when you get married, oftentimes the lady will take on the last name of her husband. And when we get saved, we literally get the name of Christ placed upon us. We are his child now. We are part of his family. When we someday meet him in heaven, we will be, after we cast those crowns at his feet, we will now even get to live with our King of kings and our Lord of lords, our heavenly Father. And what's the, what's the challenge for us today in verse 13? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Are you a faithful Christian here today? And stay faithful. Keep serving God. Are you wanting to become a faithful Christian? Then start today. Maybe you haven't been living how you're supposed to be living. Live for God today. Come and tell Jesus that you want to be one of his faithful ones and live our lives for the Lord. Let's thank the Lord for our message this evening and we'll get ready for our offering time.